on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined by Oliver Camacho and... All right, this week in Shock Talk, the summer road trip goes into its fourth round as Oliver files a field report from the Santa Fe Opera. And then Oliver goes inside the huddle with Duke Kim. Duke is wrapping up his summer as a young artist at Santa Fe Opera, singing Lysander in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Find out how Oliver's new tenor crush used the pandemic to work on his three-pointers and is building momentum for the fall season, assuming we have one. Plus, in the two-minute drill, another opera company joins the Vax Vox Populi, say that five times fast, and if you're watching via the Dallas Opera Network, subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher or just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts for the full episode. Without further ado, Oliver, I'm so glad you're here and no one else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, was gone for a couple of days. I was in Santa Fe. We're going to talk about that really soon. Uh, I am glad to be back in Chicago where I digest my food properly. Uh, there is something about um, <laughs> the altitude. Desert air. <laughs> no, it's the altitude of Santa mm. Fe. It's like 7,000 feet above sea level. And it just, everything is like harder to process. It's harder to breathe. Um, you just feel tired more easily. And um, for whatever reason, my tummy was not happy for like 80% of the time that I was there. So I bought myself some uh chewable gas pills and i took a fiber supplement at one point but we don't need to go too much into that this is the kind of quality <laughs> content that our audience comes yes, to exactly. us for let's go ahead and talk some opera chalk talk on opera box score all right oliver you had a little vacation there for a couple uh, of weeks hardly i mean i'm so <laughs> grateful to uh, the PR team at Santa Fe Opera for making my first experience at Santa Fe very deluxe. Um, and I did get to do a couple of interviews while I was there, some for my other job at WFMT, but some for the podcast. So we're going to hear three interviews of the course of the next couple of weeks that I conducted, uh, including one today. But um, I have to say that, you know, people talk about Santa Fe Opera Company, how it's like the most beautiful place to see opera in mm. the U.S. And I'm like, yeah, sure, great. You know, I'm like, we've done so many stories about Santa Fe over the years. I'm like, okay, I haven't really thought that much about it because I've never been. I don't know from firsthand experience. And if you've never been, boy, oh, boy, this is going to be a commercial for New Mexico. I mean, it's just <laughs> so breathtakingly beautiful. And I don't know if it's because of the mountains. It creates like its own like microclimate. But the sky looks different. Every day. And actually, hour to hour, it looks different. And then we have like the fires happening <laughs> over there in California. Mm. So we're getting also like some smoke and which makes the sky sometimes like purple. And like, it's just, just being in New Mexico and then being up at that higher elevation in Santa Fe, it like, it just is a different like experience than what we have here in Chicago, which is like skyscrapers. And, um, you know, the skies look pretty much the same all the time. And instead of uh, gas pills, we have deep dish pizza. Exactly. Floating in the sky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so one thing that is remarkable right away about um, going to Santa Fe is that once you get off the highway, there's like this separate road that takes you to the opera. And it's like a narrow road and you're kind of going, you keep going up. And um, 
when you get to the to the top of this road, they put you like in the sorting hat. Like, are you like important <laughs> or are you because of what they're doing this year is they're a streaming their performances to the, a different parking lot, like the lower level parking lot. So people who couldn't get a ticket for the house were able to like sit in their car and watch it. I think it's like a hundred dollars per car. So you can like pack your car full of like 10 people and you each saw the opera for 10 bucks, you know, but anyway, they sort you. And because thank you very much, uh, PR team, I was able to go to, uh, <laughs> Gryffindor. <laughs> uh, I, um, one of the things you notice is that there are people who tailgate at this opera and like they really come mm. like probably an hour before the show and they bring tables and tablecloths and, you know, uh, stemware and they have beautiful picnics out in the parking lot. And there's also these beautiful benches where you can like just walk just ever so slightly away from the parking lot and be like in nature. And it's just, I'm next time I go, I'm going to definitely try to do that. Uh, because. I wasn't so happy with the restaurant choices near the opera. So maybe my own uh, assembled picnic will be much more delicious. Um, but no, it's so romantic and so sweet. And I think it's a great um, evening if you plan it correctly. And they start their shows at 8 o'clock. And oh. I, it's, my, it's my understanding that um, earlier in the summer, the shows start at 8.30. So they're always trying to time the show with like mm, that dusk. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Can you imagine going to see... Marriage of Figaro at 8.30, you're not out until after midnight, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Marriage of Figaro, I, I saw it starting at 8, and we were, it was almost midnight when we were, you know, getting to the car. So, um, anyway. <laughs> that, that's, you have to really rely on those zaniac antics exactly. to keep you awake. <laughs> uh, that's one of the quirks of Santa Fe. Um, something else that I'm sure I could have figured out by looking at photos of Santa Fe Opera, but you don't realize it to her there. Is that it's an open air venue, yes, sure. and um, just to the left and right of the proscenium are like little cutouts so you can see the sky. But what you don't realize immediately until the show starts is that there's also a cutout at the back of the stage, so you can be looking mm. at the stage and see the sky behind the stage. And sometimes they use this to great dramatic effect, uh, where they make the you know, they make nature part of the set design. And the sun sometimes... does make a pretty solid uh, lamp for uh, the lighting designer <laughs> exactly. to use. And if you're lucky, which happened to us a couple of times, like sometimes the action coincides with weather events, like a little lightning or, you know, mm. whatever. It gets very dark in the third act, for example, you know. So um, that was really cool. And like, I think that trick was used in three out of the four operas that I saw. And each time it worked. It's like, you can't get tired of that trick. It's, it's like <laughs> Montserrat Caballé's floated high notes, you know? Mm. So um, one thing I'll say is that they, I don't know how they constructed this space, but you don't feel the breeze. And even though you're outside, it can get cold, but you don't feel wind, which is very, which is great. So like you're not freezing. Um, it also can be a little bit stifling if it's really warm because you would mm. like some breathe. But, but I, I assume that that's, uh, design so that uh, you know the orchestra pits music isn't like flying all over the place or whatnot. Yeah, so. that, that would that would make it a little difficult to get through Eugene Onegin at least. Yeah. So we saw all four shows, my traveling companion and I, and our first show on the menu was Marriage of Figaro, which is all about this set, which is like uh, sort of like a Downton Abbey uh, upstairs downstairs type of set, mm. and it's very modern and um, lots of doors closing and. Um, Gear, there's like these gears on the stage, which like remind you of a clock or make you think of like, oh, the wheels are turning, you know, type of thing. 
Um, it was all fine. Uh, but the person who stole the show was the Susanna, uh, the Chinese soprano Ying Feng. And she gratefully is one of my interview guests. We will hear that interview next week. They had this interesting thing happen with um, their artists. A lot of them couldn't get visas. And so the original cast, mm -hmm. um, there were these replacements that were um, announced after they went They went to the printer with their beautiful, beautiful booklet that they give you as the program, which is like Ooh. a comprehensive essays and casts. And uh, it's a very nice souvenir from the festival. Um so Nicholas Brownlee, who is our podcasting rival and our colleague and friend at, of the um, show, <laughs> Dallas Network, yeah, he stepped in for Ashley Riches uh, in the role of Figaro. Then we were uh, able to see the world premiere, not the prima, but the world premiere opera by John Corleano and Mark Adamo called Lord of Christ, mm. which is a vehicle for Anthony Roth Costanzo. It really is like mm. everything you like about Anthony Roth Costanzo happens in this opera what isn't uh, to like about yeah, i mean he has Sanzo, great Oliver. great color tour moments very diva um movement on stage amazing costumes like if i mean this role is really tailor-made for all of anthony roth costanzo's specific talents and i cannot imagine anybody else uh in this opera besides him in this kind of vampire role that he plays <laughs> um also in the cast uh david portillo um Jared Ott, who is one of the original bear hunks, and he is still as hunky as ever. Um, there is this really weird trio of wayward women, um, and it's sort of like the Three Graces or like um, Echo, Dryad, and Nyad, or the three mm. women in Magic, Magic, Magic Flute, like that type of vocal writing where sure, they're always sure. singing in trio. And John Corleano set these weird women uh, in a very strange way, like there's like a low voice, a high soprano, and then a extremely high soprano, like crazy wow. high, like high Q. So whenever they sang, you heard this chord that had a lot of upper notes and just one fundamental note. And the high note was so high, like the opening note for this role is a high D. And I think oh, she geez. never, she never <laughs> got to sing a note below the staff. Like it was like, and I was like, I felt so bad for her, but she nailed it. Her name was Leah Brzezinski. Uh, and congratulations, Leah. I mean, you really, she stole the show every time she was on stage because we just, everybody in the audience acknowledged like, oh my God, that is so hard what she's doing. <laughs> uh, and congratulations to the understudy of the lead soprano role, uh, Lucy, um, that was played by Catherine Henry, who was a young artist and was pulled out of some of her young artist duties to become this very difficult heroine in this show. And she did an incredible job. Catherine Henry, remember that name. Uh, it feels like it's going to be a dramatic soprano voice, like a semi-ramide type of voice. Um, very exciting singing, uh, very difficult writing for this role. Uh, but she pulled it off and she sounded great while she was doing it. And she stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Anthony Roth Costanzo and Jared Ott. And uh, yeah, I'm just was really blown away. Um, young artist, uh, Coombe Star. It was like a star making turn for her. Uh, then we have uh, Eugene Onegin, uh, which was uh, a, really a vehicle for Lucas Meacham, who wasn't the original uh, Eugene Onegin. Is actually was uh, Etienne Dupuis was cast in that role with his wife Nicole mm. Carr singing Tatiana, uh, both of whom I believe couldn't get visas. So Lucas Meacham mm. was Onegin. And uh, soprano Sarah Jukabiak, Jukabiak, sang um, what's the role? Uh, Tatiana. Um, 
But I have to say the sort of the scene stealer was the Olga, a very willowy, beautiful soprano, mezzo-soprano with a gorgeous tone, Avery. Uh, I think her name was Amaroa. Amaroa. I should have looked this up. Amaro. <laughs> um, but she was fantastic. And I'd never heard her before. And um, just a gorgeous, gorgeous performance overall. Um, but Lucas Meacham is the man. And I actually got an interview with him, which I'm going to put on my other platform on WFMT. Uh, he's going to do a playlist of his favorite versions of Largo Apactotum, Figaro's Arian. Uh, so you can look forward to that if you follow me on WFMT. And our last show was uh, Britain's A Midsummer Night's Dream, mm. hence the name of this episode. It's our Midsummer Night team of Weston and Oliver. Um, that <laughs> just show... a really, really well-written episode title. Yeah. <laughs> just a real, real, really good job. Our uh, Oberon was our friend of the show, Yesen Davies. Uh, Titania... Uh, as opposed to Titania, or as opposed to Tatiana. Uh, mm. Titania was uh, Aaron Morley, who will be one of our future OBS guests. Mm. Um, and in the role of Lysander, one of the four lovers, is tenor Duke Kim, who we're going to talk to very shortly. Wow. Uh, just once again, thank you to uh, PR team at Santa Fe for making my first experience a very deluxe. They kept giving me these drink vouchers. Like every time I got my tickets, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. There was like four drink vouchers, a strict six drink vouchers. The more like, drinks you get, the better do your you opinion think gets. Am I going to be able to drink? I mean, even if I was like sharing them with my companion who was like, almost a teetotaler, like, am I going to drink three <laughs> drinks over the course of the opera? Like, so thank you very much. I still have some leftovers. Maybe I'll save them or <laughs> for next year, my drink vouchers. So. <laughs> but it was really, they really did such a great job of um, setting me up with these artists and giving me access to John Corleano and Marco Damo, for example. Um, and just, I think their staff in general, like their box office staff, their house staff was, was so charming. I have to say, and those of you who've been to Santa Fe this year know what I'm talking about. It felt like Anthony Roth Costanzo hired all the ushers. They were all <laughs> so like gender nonconforming, beautiful. You we know. love that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I was like, this is a thing here. It's like, yeah. Um, and though it, it really added to the magic <laughs> of this year's festival. So congratulations on your uh, HR department as well. Well, uh, Oliver left his heart in Santa Fe, but luckily we have a recording of an interview where he showed a little bit of it. And in his late, latest crush, uh, Duke Kim, coming right up in Inside the Huddle. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle because they left all the sports people kind of left us hanging <laughs> for this episode. I did want to read this little note before we get into uh, the interview here. Uh, she writes, the bears are back, baby. Dear Justin Fields. Thank you. Love Chicago. I think I know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> That's from Ashley, our co-host. So, uh, a little bit of inside baseball or inside Oliver's baseball. Um, tenor Duke Kim was a finalist for the Ryan Opera Center here at Lyric Opera Chicago. And that was the year they didn't take a tenor. And I thought for sure he was going to get it because uh, his audition, his first aria, which was Lenski's aria mm. uh, from Eugene Onegin, I thought it was so heartfelt and sang with such gorgeous tone. They asked for Dalla Sua Pace as his second aria, and he choked at the end. Uh, <sighs> and I would never have asked 
Duke about that, but Duke was very forthcoming with how that audition went um, in the pre-interview. So we included that conversation about how that audition went. And uh, he was, thank you very much, Duke, for being so brave as to share your audition nightmare story with us. But uh, <laughs> no problem. Duke is doing so well now um, as he's doing his second summer as we speak at Santa Fe. And he was cast in a lead role, which not all apprentices get to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, he won or he was one of the winners of the, uh, what do you call that competition now? The Metropolitan National Opera Competition, which is now called the, the Eric, Eric and, and Dominique <laughs> LaFont competition, which really rolls off the tongue. Yeah, exactly. Um, he was a finalist with the Houston Grand Opera's uh, Eleanor McCollum competition. He has a fun story about that as well. Uh, he's doing super well. Um, he's currently in the uh, Young Artist Program at Washington National Opera. That's called now just the Cafritz Young Artist Program. It used to have another name, but we're just calling it the Cafritz Program. So he's doing super fine. And I really fell in love with this guy. He's such a fun person to talk to. He's really thoughtful. Um, he's really focused and determined. And he relates a lot of uh, his uh, focus um, to how athletes prepare. And we'll hear a little bit about that. But for podcast listeners, you're going to hear a little bit of Duke's performance at the um, Apprentice Showcase, which happened on August 5th. Here is a bit of Lenski's aria from Eugene Onegin with pianist James Lesniak. Congratulations on your um, your success uh, with the Met auditions this year. I was going to ask you about you. about your experience in the Met finals, but in our pre-interview, you told me you didn't get to do the full experience mm-hmm. of being on campus at Lincoln Center with their coaches, with their orchestra on that stage, and that's gutting. And then you told me you had a similar experience when you were a finalist for Houston. Can we talk about your experience with competitions? Yes, yes. So in the case of last year, I mean, this year, actually, for the Met, well, we all had the pandemic and we couldn't get in the theater and everything was online. So I was 
I was doing my first year in the K Fritz Young Artist Program at Washington National Opera, and they have um, they have set up computers in these big, giant rehearsal halls. They're they're very big, so you can take your mask off and sing. And um, yeah, they've set up the like a webcam like this one, and um, with a mic. Uh, it was a Zoom mic for us to get coachings and lessons. And I used that system to do my finals. And I fiddled with the lighting and stuff to make it look nicer. And I think I did my best that I could. It looked pretty good, yeah. And um, yeah, and uh, when I was doing the HGO competition, it was during Hurricane Harvey and that had flooded the opera house. So we couldn't get in the house. So we did it at my alma mater, Rice University. And it was, it's a beautiful hall, uh, mainly for orchestra, but you know, it was still, a it was different from doing it online because it was still a big space with filled with audience. And yeah, that's, I guess I shouldn't apply to competitions anymore because something's <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> but, um, yeah, look out because I'm, I'm applying to some this year. So watch out. <laughs> Well, on a more serious note, I'm a big fan, and I know that you're going to do great. Um, I think that whatever happens over the next Thank year you. or so, you're going to be one of the ones that emerges. But you are in this very sort of precarious situation, as are many emerging artists, in that you know we you're getting work now. You're here at Santa Fe in the Apprentice Program. You're singing Lysander in uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, which is not really an Apprentice role. That's like a that's like a top billing role, you know, at an opera company. Um, so, you know, you're getting the blessing from the powers that be that, yes, you are you are the next generation of American-made opera singers. And, you know, we talk about this a lot on Opera Box Score, like what are the young artist programs, what are the competitions that really give, you know, the blessing <laughs> for the next generation. And you've made it, in my opinion. Uh -huh. But you also now are making it at a time where everything is stop and start. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that experience right. and maybe the insecurity of, um, you know, having this moment yeah, momentum, yeah. but not really being able to go out, you know, full out on everything? Right, right. Well, first of all, thank you for complimenting me so much. Um, I'm just getting started and I have a lot to prove. So, but I'm in a good position. I'm, I have good momentum behind me. And that was one thing that was very important to me was when I am ready, I wanted to be riding a big wave you know i didn't want to let's say i didn't want to go to a young artist program and then get out but then people think oh this guy needs more training that's a dying momentum yeah. i wanted to come out of the young artist program with the momentum and have everybody think oh this guy is ready let's put him on the stage so and i think i've made a lot of improvements in the past year and especially here when i got here so i'm in a good position with the momentum, I, when COVID hit, I knew it was a uh, also it was double-edged sword. It was everything was to a halt, but it also meant I could go into my practicing cave and sharpen sharpen my sword, right? <laughs> and I wanted to come out swinging. I didn't want to be one of the rusty ones. I wanted to be the sharpest coming out of this pandemic. And um, it's you know everything came to a stop, and it was like a limbo for everybody and during that time I, I watched a lot of interviews of these 
great athletes, name, namely Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, because um, I like their, people call it obsession, quote unquote ob obsession, but it's, um, to me, it's more a dedication to the craft that they chose to do as a living. And um, it's, a, it's a certain level of respect for your audience. They pay good good money to pay for the ticket and they want you to put up a show, put up a performance. And um, I didn't want to make excuses for a mediocre performance. I wanted to be sure that I gave my everything that I could so I wouldn't have any doubts at the end. And Kobe famously, he it was his first season, I think, and high school basketball he came straight from high school to the lakers to the nba so that's crazy um but he said high school they have maybe one or two games a week and he, it'd be fine he'd get plenty of rest nba they play three sometimes four i think games a lot a lot of games a lot more and you get little breaks and he said during these long stretches he would shoot three pointers and they would be in the right direction but they would be short so he knew that he had to strengthen his legs. And next season, he came with stronger legs and he started landing threes. And that taught me a lot. And that's how I operate too. I record a whole bunch um, when I'm on the Santa Fe stage, especially whenever I'm in a big house, because I can experiment with my sound and try this and then see how it sounds out there and then adjust. And that's been the biggest blessing for me when I'm got here in doing Lysander at a leading role because I could sing with the orchestra often on stage and I could experiment with my sound. And um, David Lomeli helped, gave me a little tip about, oh, maybe you should just lift a little more and sing in a more like NG position. And I tried that and that really made my sound travel far better because that, that was one of my problems. I had a pretty voice, but I felt like it was falling flat and that gave me so much more distance and clarity and squillo and it's easier on the voice so i'm kind of like these athletes that you know that are obsessed with these things <laughs> and i t solve these puzzles one by one and hopefully one one day i'll be you know, I'll be happy with my results. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go into a little bit of dangerous territory here and you could just shut it down if you want to. Okay. But, um, you know, I'm half Asian. My mother is Filipino. And um, I have to say there's a certain, you know, expectation. And I don't want to say severity because I think people hear that the wrong way. But it is a sort of severity that comes from her, from mm -hmm. her upbringing uh, and her culture that forced me to be as excellent as I could be and to really think about my accomplishments and um, excellence. Mm -hmm. um, is there by any chance, do you think, anything that has to do with your culture that caused you to be so hard on yourself, but also to think about these things in a way that maybe you don't see your colleagues thinking about? Like a certain self-love or a certain uh -huh. self-kindness oh, well, where, where I'm going, you know? It's yeah, I think that definitely I lack I lack self-love and self-kindness. Um, partially, it's the... I, I didn't grow up in Korea too much because I moved to Germany when I was little too. So I thought it was like back and forth. And then I grew up in the States mostly. But um, Korea has a more competitive nature. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a small country and we're surrounded by big, big nations. And, you know, people really have to compete 
with each other to you know come through and so maybe that had something to do with my personality today but also um my parents they always said you know we don't care what you do as long as it's illegal and morally okay be the best at what right right like, like don't do anything bad but be the best in your field and do something what makes you happy but something that doesn't you know harm anybody but be the best pick something that you could be something that you could be the best at so i'm not saying i'm already there i'm still doing my best but i think that kind of environment gave me the endless drive to seek the truth in my my profession and the truth is real truthful singing and truthful acting and being a good colleague and all that so yeah but i definitely lack the self love i know well thank you thank you for that response i know you weren't really prepared to uh, answer that question um, but I just got the sense that maybe we had something like that in common. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I think on. so. I think so. Yeah. Um, you are at Santa Fe right now, and I'm very jealous. Uh, I mean, this is my first time here, and it is so gorgeous. And um, you know, when I was it is tr yeah. trying to become trying to become a singer myself, like this, of course, was one of the programs as a young artist that you could do. That really was like, okay, you made it. If you can get to Santa Fe, you are at the next step of this. You know, it's not a very clear path, but if there is a clear path, mm. getting into Santa Fe Young Artist Program is one of the steps that everybody would like to take. So, can you talk about? Um, the experience of being here and especially I want to hear about working with Maestro Bickett and working with Yesen Davies and with Aaron Morley. I mean, what a cast that they've assembled here for Midsummer mm -hmm. Night. Yes. Well, you know, it's been it's been great. I was here in, in 2019 for the first time and I was the first alternate. So I didn't really make it, but somebody thankfully dropped out and I could benefit from this program. And um I returned this year, and as you said, I am singing a lead role in a great opera with a star, what is it, star-studded cast, mm -hmm. star, lots of stars. Yeah, that's right. And um, what was, what was, I feel so lucky is that Maestro Bickett, Aaron, Yestin, all these, the, the, the whole cast, they are, you know, these are people that are singing everywhere in big houses, and yet they treated me and my other three, uh, not just three, we have more apprentices in this show, but they've treated us with the utmost respect and they treated us as professionals. And, you know, if we had mean people in the lead cast and they were playing games with us, I'm, sh I'm sure that our end product would not have been as great as we have it right now. And it was a special atmosphere. Um, Nisha Jones, the director, was great at uh, setting the tone in the room with Maestro Bickett. And I felt very welcomed, respected, and I couldn't have asked for any uh, better chance to sing a lead role in a big house like this for the first time. It's such, a, so, it's such an ensemble. Yes, also, oh, it's such an ensemble show exactly. that if you don't have collegiality, I think the audience would definitely recognize that because there's so much play happening on stage you know yes yeah and these are just 
good people as much as they're great singers and performers they're just good people and i'm really thankful it's it's really special you know you don't i've i've observed as an apprentice some casts and it's not always like this and i'm just thankful and also you know when i when i got here i never thought i made it because every performance i have to prove myself mm. and i mean that's just my personality mm. and it it might haunt me one day but even i think even if i make it farther in this career every night will be a test for could we have a new audience and they like i said they paid good money to be there and i should respect that and every night at the curtain call the applause will be my test <laughs> did you score did you score an a plus uh, an s s level performance or not it's it really uh, that's how i feel hmm. <laughs> Um, for those of us who have not made it into the Santa Fe Young Artist Program, can you just tell us what the day to day is like? What is mm -hmm. what is yours? Because I understand you're very busy, especially since you're in you're in the opera. Um, but yeah, what is the experience like? How long is the program? Yeah. What do you? What are the sort of the objectives and who are the people they bring in to work with, etc. Right. So normally it's three months, but I think this year we started in May twenty seventh or something, and we're going till. Wait, it is exactly three months. <laughs> oh no, this year we started on June seventh, but usually it's three months. Okay. But um, so basically, when once as an apprentice, once you get here, Maestro Suzanne Cheston uh, whips us into shape for the operas, the chorus scenes. Mm -hmm. So if we just dive in straight to to it, and then it's expected to be memorized by the end of the week usually. And she does a great job at get, getting us prepared for that because once staging starts. You don't want to be up there not knowing your music. That's just embarrassing. Um, and she she helps us with that and I have deep respect for her. Um, so that's the first couple of weeks. And then the shows open, at least this year, they open one week at a time. So so in, in one, week sec, uh, one week distance. Yeah, staggered, yeah. So let's say you open something staggered. Yes, staggered. Um, so... You would start staging one opera and then you would still be rehearsing something musically for that and then that opera would go to production week and then you start staging another opera and then it's like a lego mm -hmm. moving <laughs> and um it never ends until the last show opens and then we opened the last show i think two weeks ago and right as that opens we have uh, the apprentice showcase um, but the week after the last opening, we have Apprentice Showcase, where a lot of industry people, managers, administrators, um, people of other interests come and listen to you. And then right after that, scene rehearsal starts. So uh, we have two Apprentice scene nights. Um, everybody's in some scene, and those rehearsals start the week after. That's where I am right now. And then we do the scenes and go home. We have three weeks. And I've been here for two months. And it feels like I got here like yesterday because time flew by so quickly. But that's the gist of it. What are you, What is your scene this year? I am doing two scenes from Elixir of Love. Um, I'm only doing one night, so it's back-to-back -back scenes. It's the where Nemorino gets the wine from the doctor, the obligato, yeah, yeah. obligato into into the la 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 la, la, la yeah. with Adina. Okay. Yes, it's a 
couple cute scenes. Yeah, yeah. you get to practice your being drunk. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and so you, so you're saying um, lots of activity for the singers, preparing chorus, then working on staging the operas, and then doing a showcase, which has managers and other industry professionals invited, and then the scenes program. Are there master classes? Are there daily lessons? Are there coachings with like Maestro Bickett or anybody like that? Oh, right, right. Yes, I forgot to mention that because this year I had so much going on. I had to pace myself. I didn't take many lessons, but we, um, Galitha Nichols, our director, brings in a lot of, what is it, a lot of music, other musicians to work with us. So teachers, coaches, um, sometimes dr drama coaches. Um, so we can sign up for those lessons. Mm -hmm. And it's, I don't think it's always daily maybe once or twice a week. You can choose with whom you work with. You can choose when you want to work with. Not not exactly when, but you can choose to sign up when you want. And um, besides that, a lot of the principal artists are gracious enough to give their time and talk to us on various topics. Yesterday, we had a, uh, we, we, we had a chat with Brent Ryan, who is singing Don Basilio in in Figaro and also he's singing in Midsummer. So he um yeah, like these uh principal artists give us time and they are willing to talk to us about these subjects. We had a tenor talk with Brent and we talked about all these nerdy tenor things that we love. <laughs> and um other singers have other topics. Um I think we're meeting with Meg Marino who is singing Cherubino in Figaro about dealing with contracts, which is very helpful for us because a lot of us, myself included, are not managed yet. And we we have contracts coming in, but we don't exactly know how much we should get paid, what we should expect, things like that. So, you know, these little insights of our next step helps us a lot. And that's why we're here for. We're apprentice artists verging into the going into being professionals well since i know that um you probably have to get back to some rehearsal or something like that i just want to have one more question for you and this is your chance to uh, review review your own performance and uh can you tell me about your second aria performance uh when you sang it for the ryan opera center i mean you hit the lensky out of the park uh, but then they called you back and asked you to sing Dalla Swapache. What is your play-by-play -play on how that went? Uh, well, the I thought I sang the Lensky passionately and the way I wanted to. And then they asked for Dalla Swapache. And I forgot what I what else I had on the list, but I heard that them pick that and I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, I I knew I knew it was not it was not gonna be good. And you know, Lenski sings a lot in the passaggio too, and then, but in a different way. In the Mozart, you have to caress all these Fs, Gs, and Es, E, Fs, Gs, and it went. And then I got through the first verse, and then by the end, um, uh, there's a bunch of Gs there, and then it, I just couldn't get up there anymore. I was so tired here, mm -hmm. so tight, and I just went. Uh, uh. <laughs> and then the next G, I. The next year I falsettoed, yeah. which was very insulting because <laughs> a tenor shouldn't. A tenor shouldn't falsetto unless 
it's a character choice, yeah. and it was not a character <laughs> choice. It was a means of survival. And, um, yeah, I, I, I understand why they didn't take me, and I, that's totally valid because I, I just choked, and it wasn't a choke as in psychologically choke. Yeah. It was actually choke. Yeah. On the <laughs> <laughs> so are you still offering well now we can laugh about it right <laughs> are you still offering Dallas Apache on your package yeah. uh, not right now <laughs> okay, good. it's a trauma <laughs> yeah. Duke Kim you are so amazing uh, I'm already a big fan and I can't wait to see more of you thank you for coming on to Opera Box Score thank you for having me Oliver and all best to you this just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week. Portland Opera has become the latest company to announce that it will require proof of full COVID-19 vaccination or a negative PCR test for all ticket holders next season. The Alderborough Festival has added an extra week to its 2022 season. CEO Roger Wright said, quote, Britain and Piers' vision of supporting the best emerging young artists remains central to our mission. And part of this longer festival will celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Britain and Piers Young Artist Program. It offers the chance to showcase the wide range of brilliant young artists working with us in our new year-round model. The Tabor Opera House in Colorado has discovered a treasure trove of opera scenery and backdrops created between 1879 and 1902 that had been forgotten for over a century. Historian Wendy Wasit Barrett said, quote, The artists that were painting this scenery were painting opera, World's Fair Midway exhibits, Grand Circus Spectacles for Ringling Brothers, The Wild West Show by Buffalo Bill. Tabor Opera House is deciding how to restore and possibly make use of the sets. Maybe suggest a historically accurate production of The Ballad of Baby Doe. The city of Philadelphia will soon have a statue memorializing contralto Marion Anderson. The monument, which will be located at the Academy of Music, will be the first in the city dedicated to a black woman. The National Marion Anderson Museum has already raised over $200,000 for the project. Lucas Buch, a transgender artist, has made his career debut as a baritone with On-Site Opera. He performed a selection from As One, an On-Site Opera's contribution to Tapestry of New York, part of Little Island's NYC Free Festival. 12-year-old Memphis student Caleb Thompson is joining the roster of the Metropolitan Opera for this fall's Fire Shut Up In My Bones. Thompson has been cast as the understudy for the treble role of Char's Baby just one year after enrolling in a course called Opera Class taught by Bethania Beret at the Stax Music Academy. Watch out, Miss Beret, aspiring opera stage moms know your name now. Opera Australia has announced that international performing arts leader Fiona Allen has been appointed as the company's next chief executive officer later this year. Allen will return to Australia after many years in the United Kingdom where she led multiple performing arts organizations. In trade news, Long Beach Opera has announced the appointment of their new music director, Christopher Roundtree. Founder and artistic director of the genre-bending ensemble Wild Up, Roundtree has made a name for himself in contemporary music and opera. Lyric Opera of Chicago has announced another cast change for their upcoming production of Macbeth, with Sandra Radvanovsky making her role debut as Lady Macbeth. The original eponymous role was to be performed by Italian baritone Luca Salsi. Russian baritone Roman, Roman Burdenko, Burdenko was recently named as Salsi's replacement, and as of August 16th, 
American bass baritone Craig Kalkoff has been named as Burdenko's replacement. Someone must have said Macbeth out loud at the Civic Opera House. Oh, rookie mistake. Cornell Wood, the first black head usher at Philadelphia's Academy of Music, is retiring after a nearly 50-year career. Quote, it was like a rarity to see a person of color working upstairs in here, so it was a challenge, said Wood. I think it's a lot to be learned here in the arts that's hidden behind the scenes, not just in the scenes. Exit stage right. Italian conductor and composer Gianluigi Gialmetti has died at the age of 75. From 2000 to 2009, Gialmetti was musical and artistic director of Teatro dell'Opera di Roma, leading the company in lesser-known and rediscovered works like Mascagni's Iris and the world premiere of Marie Victoire. Austrian Helden tenor Peter Svensson has died at the age of 57 due to complications arising from COVID-19. The young tenor's breakthrough came in the title role of Wagner's Rienzi at the Prague State Opera in 1991. And on this day, August 16th in 1613, it was the day Claudio Monteverdi became the Republic of Venice's master of music. In 1731, the first performance of Karl Heinrich Graun's Imphigenia in Aulis. In 1775, the first performance of Antonio Sacchini's La Colonie in Paris. In 1782 was the birth of tenor Giacomo Guglielmi, who created the role of Don Ramiro in Rossini's Cinderella. In 1834, it was the birth of French-based Armand Castlemary, who created a few roles, Don Diego in Afrikan by Meyerbeer, The Monk in Verdi's Don Carlo, and Horatio in Tomas's Hamlet, or Amelie. In 1857, it was the first performance of Verdi's reworked Stefelio, also known as Aroldo. In 1876, a little opera called Siegfried premiered at Bayreuth. <laughs> in 1885, it was the birth of Italian soprano Carmen Mellis. Among her pupils was one Renata Tebaldi. In 1943, Allied bombers damaged La Scala Opera House in Milan. In 1952, it was the birth of American soprano the late Gianna Rolandi. Rest in peace. And in 1955, it was the birth of Romanian-based Alexandru Agace, happy birthday. We also say happy birthday to American soprano Angela Maria Blasi, born this day in 1956. And that's your two-minute drill. That was a little clip of Wolfgang Windgassen singing the sword-forging aria from uh, Siegfried at Bayreuth in 1955. Oh, you're so good at, at finding those really rare operas, you know, <laughs> your connoisseur. Well, it's kind of funny because I really could have had my pick for any opera because apparently August 16th was the day to premiere your opera. We had to cut out so many. Yes. <laughs> it's, yeah, if you go to Classical Almanac, which we should credit more often, um, mm. 
there was a lot of entries for today, a lot of birthdays, a lot of first first performances, but we try to keep it, uh, you know, give a little to Italy, give a little bit to Germany, you know, every now and then we'll, taste, we'll throw flavor. a bone at France, you know. <laughs> I think that's what all of our French listeners say whenever yes. I attempt to pronounce something in French. Um, if you're watching on TDO, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher or favorite the show on Apple Podcasts for the full discussion uh, from earlier. Um, but for now, I, I think it's really great that Marian Anderson is still breaking barriers as a statue um, because... I think the thing that was so interesting to me was not so much the statue itself, because I think she deserves all the statues. She's an amazing singer, amazing uh, leader in the civil rights movement. Um, but the fact that she's the first black woman to Come get a, a statue in this in the city of Philadelphia, which I think is very significant, too, because Philadelphia is so central to like the American like mythos you know what i mean like all the founding fathers all of the you know founding documents and it took until you know this project to have um a black woman appear it just i'll just say about time i think that's all i can say yeah. and it's uh, interesting that we also had a story about that first usher the first head black usher from the academy of music um mm -hmm. so all of this you know he's probably i don't know if he's old enough to have heard marian anderson i wonder we should ask him uh, we yeah. should get him as our inside the huddle guest because he oh, says he, has, he would be great he, on. Inside he has the some huddle. stories. <laughs> I'd love to hear <laughs> his stories about um, maybe uh, being treated so well by um, opera mm. audiences, you know, 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So much well, respect. Speaking of uh, things uh, changing and hopefully getting better, uh, Lucas, a book, Bauk, uh, yeah. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um I think it's a uh, it's great because uh, obviously we we don't we still don't have that many openly trans uh, singers um, singing on major series uh, uh, major stages yet. Um, yeah. But I think it's doubly interesting for about because they used to be uh, mezzo soprano, um, and I remember our conversation with Lucia Lucas um, a couple years back. Um, discussing how uh, uh, she felt that a lot of trans singers were having trouble with dysphoria because of the the voice they had to sing in and being yeah. worried about uh, changing their voice type or, or ruining their vocal cords. And I think it's just amazing to see, you know, uh, see someone embracing a new uh, the, the new voice, the true yeah. voice. Within, I mean, it's, you know? it's really none of our business, but uh, yeah. Lucas did uh, speak to this Metro source, um, which is where we're getting the story from. And um, apparently he took testosterone and that mm -hmm. made the voice drop so yeah i mean it's that's pretty cool <laughs> to, to see that you know your whole body can change and you could still remember how to sing and you could you know i'm sure there's lots of working it out but um mm -hmm. you know to keep the the technique in such good shape that you can perform in your new voice that's that's pretty awesome you know yeah really amazing stuff um speaking of amazing stuff a 12 year old went to a course at i don't know what stacks music academy is but i'm sure it's it's something great you know but you know, not, <laughs> not everybody like takes a liking to opera the first time they're exposed to it but i just love the idea of you know this class uh inspiring this kid to go out and you know study and take voice lessons and audition and get cast uh in you know what's going to be probably the hottest ticket uh, at the Met. Oh, when, absolutely. If it opens. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, all of this is with a big yeah. asterisk. 
and and hopefully the uh, role that he is uh, understudying, the person who was originally cast, uh, is already an American, is not going to deal with this uh, visa problem that all these yeah. opera companies are having, <laughs> like Lyric Opera. <laughs> I will say, though, the Met is currently uh, banning kids under 12 because they can't get the vaccine. And I'm mm. wondering if that's going to be a problem for him on stage. Well, he's 12, I, so I he'll probably that. turn 13 by the time it opens. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it's just kind of funny to me, especially as uh, more and more places, <laughs> you know, figure out, like, get rid of the kids, but you can come. <laughs> yes, <laughs> You're singing. Exactly. Um, I really, really love this story about the uh, the sets in the Tabor Opera House. Hmm. Um, I've never been to the Opera House. Uh, my parents went on vacation. I'm, I'm, my dad is a a big architecture historian. I thought you were from also, Alabama. This is Colorado, isn't it? This is, yeah, this is Colorado. They, they, they just went, they went to visit. They went way out of their way. Okay. Um, uh, it's, it's still this kind of like small town. It's, but it's, vi- but my dad being a combination of an opera fan and theater fan and Beverly Sills fan knew a lot about the uh, Tabor Opera House going in. And it's right now it's in the middle of being sort of like, like completely rehabbed. So being completely gutted and sort of put back together. Um, but because, you know, of the, of the nature of like the rebuild, um, they've started to sort of discover things that were kind of hanging around. And one of these things were like these beautiful old sets. And and I should emphasize that these sort of painted sets do not really exist in the U S in this, in this condition. Um, they are, they're horizontal moving sets before the verticals were, were installed. They, they have all these little period details, um, and it's, it's, it's a historian's like dream to, to just find these just like gathering dust in the attic. But now they're in like this, uh, this, this weird predicament where all of their money is going into rehabbing the building and they don't know how to store, how to use these, these sets. Um, so I really hope that, um, the ones that can be used do make some kind of appearance in their own theatrical context, but I imagine they'll probably all end up in museums at some point. But um, I would love to go see it. I love the uh, Tabor Opera House. I love Ballad of Baby Doe. It's or some a, really some really eccentric, rich opera fan will go and buy them and cut them up and turn them into wallpaper. Or oh, like, God. <laughs> Oliver, what are you doing? Why have you done this to me? <laughs> all right. We need to wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Oh, wait, hang on a second. I need to put on my George impression. Weston? Oh, wait, you don't have one because I'm George. <laughs> <laughs> Oliver, do you have a good call for me? Yeah, I mean, we're in the doldrums of summer. Is that what you say? Uh, we're in the dog uh, yeah, days. Yeah. The, <laughs> dog so days, doldrums, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> there isn't so much happening uh, operatically uh, outside of the summer festivals that we're not going to. Uh, so I'll bring it back to Santa Fe uh, and to that soprano once again. Her name is Catherine Henry. Um, look out for her. She is going to be the the poop. <laughs> and that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen our bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com or subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher or just favor the show on Apple Podcasts. 
The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is, spoiler alert, what killed the victim in White Lotus. Ooh. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is me. For our guest, Duke Kim, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, even if most of the OBS team is not. We're back with an all-new show next week when soprano Yin Fang goes inside the huddle to talk about being the Mozart it girl of the moment. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more historic backdrops hiding in your attic. Join us.